Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What is up, everybody? My name is Kyle Matovic. I am the host of the In Liberty and Health podcast, where we talk all things liberty, health and wellness, and beyond. My hope is to encourage and spread the message of liberty and physical and mental well-being. I hope you enjoy all the topics we talk about with our guests. We're on all major streaming platforms, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy. Man, I'm doing as good as anyone can do getting buried by his 13-year-old son on leg day. <laughs> I'm not going to apologize for not being on this podcast because I got to go see Metallica. So if that's a problem, kiss my ass. All right, all right, all right. I got the legendary Idaho Joe, Mr. Joe Evans with me today. How you doing, man? Damn, I'm legendary. Wow. That's a new one. That's good, though. That's good. We're here making legends today. That's what it's all about. Yeah, well, you know what? I remember I followed you, I think, shortly after you on Reed's show with uh, Justin O'Donnell. And oh, yeah. uh, ever since then, I've I've watched, I think, all your shows with uh, those two guys. Reed's a great friend of mine. I talk to him all the time. And uh, I plan on, you know, maybe getting Justin on eventually. He just finally followed me back on Twitter. But, uh, no, you guys are awesome. And I believe when I first followed you, your name was Fuck War Joe or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I go with that one uh, on a fairly big regular basis yeah i'm strong anti-war i've been anti-war ever since i got out and i just realized what a fucked up mess it was you know in iraq and afghanistan and it's always been a key issue on my platform is you know bring the troops home get our troops out of afghanistan get them out of iraq get them out of the 180 of the nations that you know i guess we're in about 160 Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's funny because we're in like, we have troops stationed in 90% of the countries of the world right now. You know, we're bombing like eight or nine of them continuously. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's always been, you know, one of the key reasons why I felt the need to get into Congress more than anything else. You know, when it comes to politics, where do you stop war at? You stop right Congress. You look at someone like Ron Paul. Um, You know, he sent a huge, huge message out to millions of people. And I mean, people still talk about him to this day relentlessly because you could see all the yes votes and there'd be that so that, you know, lone one no vote. And you knew who it was every single time because he wasn't going to raise your taxes and he was going to send you or me off to go kill people unnecessarily. Yeah. Yeah. And. So that was one of the things when it came for me looking at getting into politics and how it was, you know, I, I dipped my toe into doing state and I was looking and during the run for that, I was going, well, what can I really do to stop things, you know, at that level, at the state level? Oh, yeah, no, you need to be in Congress. You need to be where Ron Paul was. You, you need to be at that level where you can actually have that debate on the national stage to say, right. look, 
uh, this is wrong. We shouldn't be doing it. Why are we doing it? You know, who, who's pulling the strings? Who's making this stuff happen? You know, why do we continue to see these near unanimous votes for military adventurism? Mm-hmm. You know, and then you slowly watch, you know, the people who object in Congress, you know, slowly get phased out. You got Ron Paul, you got uh, Cynthia McKinney, you got uh, several of our other anti-war politicians, you know, that they just get tired. They get broke. You know, it's like nobody's there to replace him. And it's like, no, no, we we need to put people in who want to make sure that the wars end. It's like, I'm running. Mm-hmm. Okay, <sighs> yeah, no, yeah, that's awesome. So what kind of brought you to libertarianism other than war? Was kind of war the main thing? It always seems like war or Ron Paul kind of woke people up and moved them over. Um you served, and I want to talk about that a little bit, but, uh, you know, what really pushed you there? Well, part of it was, was I got out in 2016, you know, I was still willing to look at the two big parties and go, you know what, uh, Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders, anti-war, you know, let's fix the economy, let's fix things for the people, let's, you know, so I went in and I was doing a little bit of volunteer work for Bernie Sanders, went to the events, you know, met Susan Sarandon at one point and was going, you know, the Bernie revolution. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, and I showed up at one of his events here in Idaho and literally the turnout was frigging incredible for Bernie. Yeah. And then it came time for Idaho's uh at the time, we weren't doing a primary for the president. The Democrat Party was doing a caucus, you know, for the presidential ballot in 2016. And we're sitting, and I'm there, and I volunteer to go work on that in order to help count. And I'm looking at the way things are set up, and I'm going, the establishment doesn't want Bernie to win. You know, yeah. the, establish, the establishment Dems do not want Bernie to win. You know, you walk in, you understand how the game's going to be played. And literally, they gave Bernie this section. Yeah, all of the people who want to come and represent for Bernie. Here's here's the part you get to sit in. Okay, and the rest of the arena was set up for everybody who is to be fans of Hillary. And then you're looking at people settling in and they're going, where's the Bernie section? Where's the Bernie section? Where's the Bernie, you know, and this just starts flowing around and you realize that uh no idahoans want bernie mm-hmm. but the establishment wants to make sure hillary gets her count right and then i'm like you know what i live in a red red state the state is so damn red that there is no that it's not red anymore i mean the republicans have owned idaho for so long they don't even think like Republicans anymore. <laughs> so I'm going, the red's broke. Now I know the blue's broke. So then I turn around and I'm looking at the Green Party because Green Party's anti-war, right? Yeah. Right. Talking about anti-war, it's that lower left, it's that libertarian left. They want to see that decentralization. And then 2018, 2020 comes along and Green Party doesn't have ballot access in Idaho. So in 2018, I ran as a libertarian candidate, you know, thinking that, well, 2020 will come around, I'll support the Greens and see what's going on there. 
Now, 2020 comes around and I'm looking at the green candidates and I go, yeah, that's uh, not going to work either. <laughs> so who were the uh, Green Party candidates? Because I, I honestly don't even know. Howie Hawkins was the 2020 candidate. Okay, that name rings a bell. <laughs> okay. And the thing is, I actually hosted a Green Party presidential candidate debate in Idaho in October of 2019, a year before the general election. Mm -hmm. So I have the nine candidates for the Green Party here in the state of Idaho. And I'm actually doing the talk and the meet and greet with them. And I'm going, ah. you know, every one of these guys puts the pants on the same way I do. Mm -hmm. Every one of them. I'm going, I'm better qualified than these people. All right. I'm better qualified than, you know, a union trucker out of New York. <laughs> Jesus. You know, and I'm going, okay, yeah. Um, and there just wasn't enough support here in Idaho to continue pushing the Green Party. Mm -hmm. And the next thing I know, the Green Party goes full socialist. Dude. You know, Green Party came out in support of mask and vaccine mandates this year. Dude. After Jill Stein, no less. You know, Jill Stein, one of the cornerstones that made Jill Stein famous as a Green Party candidate was... Well, Jill wasn't anti-vax herself, but it was vax freedom. It was vax choice. Right. And that was one of the keystones why people went into the Green Party for Jill Stein was because Jill Stein was vax choice. Because Jill Stein understood Big Pharma wasn't going to be honest with you about the vaccine. She wasn't anti-vax. Mm -hmm. But she was vax choice. Right. And that's an important distinction. <laughs> oh, it's a huge, yeah. you know, and, and a lot of people... <laughs> And a lot of people don't want to grasp that, but right, you know, especially with this issue right now, too. Right. It, it's it's so ridiculous, and I get shit from everybody because I've listened to doctors, right? As a health and mm -hmm. fitness kind of guy, um, Peter Tia, um, Zubin. There's a bunch of doctors that, that I just can't really think off the top of my head. Jay Bhattacharya would be another one. He's mm -hmm. anti-lockdown, anti-mandate as it gets. And he'll come out and say, yeah, it seems like the vaccine may help older people and not dying. Seems like it. Don't know. <laughs> Just kind of seems like it. And then you get people on the other side that say, oh, well, even if you like sniff this thing, you're going to die. Like everybody who got the vaccine died of COVID. It's <laughs> can, can we not have like a nuanced discussion around this? Look, my mom got vaccinated. I didn't get vaccinated. Me and my fiance both got COVID actually about a year ago to the day and mm -hmm. we were perfectly fine and we haven't gotten sick since. So, yeah, you, you know, I, I don't care about it either way. Just don't fucking tell people they have to get it. And it's bullshit. And honestly, for younger people, it seems to be more harmful than good. So once again, choice, I'm, if you want to go get it, go get it. Just don't tell me I have to fucking get that thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, but the green party came out in support of vaccine mandates and, you know, and that was one of the things that, a lot of people in the Green Party really don't understand. That was one of the things that actually marked the exodus from the Green Party into the Libertarian Party, because all of those people who in the who were left libertarian, you know, anarcho-communist, left libertarian, you know, were thinking, we have a home here. We have a home decentralized. We we can do our little commune thing and set up our own little state, you know, concepts. And it's like next thing you know. 
Green Party's gone full socialist. Mm -hmm. You know, the Green Party candidate is running dual Socialist Party of America, Green Party. And it's like, yeah, no, that, no, you, right. you betrayed the entire concept of this social democracy because you've just inserted somebody who wants to govern by executive writ. Like, right. who else? Oh, the Democrats and Republicans. <laughs> and it's like, he's, you got Joe Jorgensen, she's talking freedom. It's like, yeah. Now, I caught shit from some of the people who were on the Greens because they're going, you were always more libertarian than you were green. And it's like, eh, eco-socialism I can get behind because, you know, we all breathe the same air. We all drink the same water. You know, it's all got to be taken care of. But th this executive writ and medical mandate, mm, you know. So, you know, e even though now, you know, I'm not full anarcho-capitalist like an awful. I'm not that right side of libertarian. Sure. Yeah, and I ended up settling in that middle ground where it's mutualism. You know, the uh, anarcho-syndicalism or however that all fits right in there in the middle where it's like, look, we want to decentralize because we know most people just aren't going to find that group of people that are 100% in agreement. Mm -hmm. You know, find the people like you that want to do things the way you want to do and get with them and prove to the rest of us you can make it happen. Right. You know, because we know there's no one way to do things. There's no mm -hmm. one solution that's universal, especially when you look at the makeup of the United States. You know, yeah. There's so many different cultures, so many different states. I mean, I'm in southwestern Pennsylvania, and, I, you know, traveling down to Florida, it's a completely different animal. Traveling to Kentucky, Ohio, they're all completely different animals, but I'll tell you mm -hmm. what, I, I do love it here in Pittsburgh. But, uh, yeah, it's all completely different areas. There's different Good cultures. Country. Yeah, yeah. People, uh, people kind of laugh. Someone was tweeting to me this morning saying they could tell I was from Pennsylvania because my accent. And, uh, you know, when you're from Pittsburgh, you don't think you have an accent, but uh, – you know, just the demands of people around here are going to be so much different. And this is where I kind of think about the Libertarian Party as being very, very useful, specifically here in Pennsylvania, because there's a lot of red areas, right? When I go take my dogs for a, I don't want to say the word too loud because they'll come storming in here, but when we leave the house on leashes and harnesses, <laughs> um, there's Trump flags all over the place, right? And this is like a pretty small town and you drive five minutes, there's farms this way, five minutes, there's farms another way. Um, and then you can go about an hour to uh, Pittsburgh and obviously it's all blue there because it's a big city. Right? Yeah. Um, my buddies who live over on the east side of the state, they were campaigning as libertarians for a uh, Senate, right? They were getting 40% of the Democrat vote in blue counties. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, I get frustrated when people think, oh, it has to be Republican or Democrat when we see libertarians getting success. But kind of getting back to my main point here is that as libertarians, we can do very, very good at campaigning to both. We don't have oh, to yeah. campaign to just one. We can do both. You know, and, and that's one of the things that really upsets me with some of the people who, you know, went in against Joe Jorgensen. You know, Joe Jorgensen wasn't hyper pandering. Yeah, uh, yeah. Th there was a little. She said some stuff that was attracting. She used some languaging that was attractive to the left. 
Okay. Um, not going to deny that. Sure. But she was not doing the degree of pandering that she was accused of doing in an awful lot of places. You literally had people who were hard right that were like, no, Joe Jorgensen's bad because, you know, she she showed up at a Black Lives Matter rally. Oh, dude, they were saying she was a freaking Marxist. That one tweet, and she clarified after, and I, look, I completely understand why people wanted to sink her for that. Because it's like, okay, well, you're representing libertarianism. And to a lot of people, this means a lot. But like, mm -hmm. as soon as she put out that tweet, I'm like, man, they just fucking jumped all over her. And they're like, oh, she's not a libertarian. Okay, well, you guys can be mad at her messaging and what she said. But if you look at the, you know, the way she ran and her issues and the way she felt about the things, she was 100% libertarian. I don't oh, yeah. think there's a single thing where she yeah. wasn't a good libertarian on. You know, and, and it's one of those other things. You take a look at some of the other uh, candidates that have run for president. You know, even you step back and you take a look at Dave Smith right now. Okay, Dave Smith, he said some stuff. He's used some languaging. You know, you look at and go, um, that's not in line with platform, Dave. It's not in line with platform, Dave. You know, and like the debate, he sat down with Spike po Cohen and, you know, hammered out the issues with, the bordertarian thing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, by the time they actually sat down and finished hammering it out, you know, his initial languaging was, we need to close the borders. He'd walked it around. You know, so we have problems with language. We do. Uh, we don't always come at it from a true libertarian perspective and we end up working it around. You know, we all believe in freedom of movement. You should be able to pick up and go where you want to go. Some people want to throw merit up at the border. Other people say, just don't let the criminals in. Uh, well, then define you know. criminal. And who defines criminal? Right. Who, who, who defines criminal? Well, the state defines the criminal. <laughs> yeah. You know, what time, you know, oh, they're coming across the border without registering. That's illegal. Uh, they're human beings. You know, borders were created to limit governments, not people. Um so when you step back and you take a look at that, well, they were a drug dealer down south. Well, everybody, you know, has done that at some point or another. Everybody's done something illegal in the country of their origin, which is part of the reason they're looking for a brand new start. You know, some people just got desperate because they were hungry. Mm -hmm. So what point do you determine an entrepreneur who is operating outside of the scope the state has allowed, you know, where the state is likely to kill you for being an entrepreneur who is denying them access yeah. to their revenue. You know, we've seen that happen here in the U.S. often enough. Um, uh, sorry, you're processing marijuana without your tax stamp. Uh, <laughs> that's the new one that's coming out with a more law. You know, uh -huh. it's like we're, we're legalizing marijuana, but if now... Uh, we're actually doubling the penalty if you move marijuana without your tax stamp. Like, oh, got it. <laughs> so you're in Idaho and you were saying yes. that it's a very, very red state. And I think when you were on Reed's show, you were talking about the uh, how bad some of the Republicans are there. And it's funny because I'm friends with a lot of like the paleos, the hoppians. Right. Um, the, these guys who can who want to go the GOP route. Look, I have nothing but respect for them. And look, if that's your best way to advance liberty, all for it. Go ahead, do that. The Republicans here in Pennsylvania are such a fucking joke, right? 
These guys literally said on one of their campaign flyers, it said, we want to persecute people who hurt or who attack police as a hate crime. We're going to give election day workers a day's pay. We want to make election day a holiday and we'll persecute cancel culture as harassment. Like this was on their main platform. Like you, you guys really want to believe like these guys are serious. We have libertarians that are winning here in Pennsylvania. And you're telling me to go with these ass clowns. These dudes who mm-hmm. signed on to all the stimulus, uh, like these guys are a fucking joke. Yeah. So I'm I'm going with the Libertarian Party as long as we're winning. And once again, if, if we start losing and things don't work out the way they should, I'll reconsider. But right now, dude, I can't in good conscience put my vote behind these people. And, and if yeah. you tell them, hey, your dude Trump failed on pretty much everything he campaigned on they'll look at you like you're crazy and they'll call you a mm-hmm. fucking liberal like and look you can bring up the good things that trump did the, the very very few things and the fact that he changed part of the gop kind of got some more libertarian leaning people in but he himself was an abject failure so um yeah. kind of a long-winded way to get to asking you um the gop in your state does it seem like they got better with Trump or are they still just kind of the same old, you know, die in the wool red Republican? Uh, it's actually interesting. The reason why is because our gubernatorial elections run opposite every two years. So we're in a gubernatorial election this year. And we've actually had a couple of our gubernatorial candidates uh, go to uh, Trump and his associates looking for endorsements. So we actually have one candidate here who is endorsed by Trump, another candidate who's endorsed by Roger Stone. Yeah, and we're looking at these conservative family values type people who have this problem with actually obeying the laws that they want to keep on the books. <laughs> you so, know, sounds um, like uh, the Democrats when it came to lockdown. So I'm sorry, that's, a, that's right? an entirely separate rant. But yeah, go well, ahead. Well, 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 yeah, but it's like <laughs> we got one who's continuously violating campaign finance laws and reporting. Uh, as lieutenant governor, she's had trouble with campaigning on the government dime. You know, she's actually done actions. You know that she's had the state pay for. That were just campaign, you know, events. Uh, we have another who <laughs> just got sentenced to ten days in jail for contempt of court for a trespassing violation. <laughs> oh God! Okay, January sixth, and Reed's gonna love this. Reed's gonna love this. Okay, we had an individual from the state of Idaho who was in Washington on January 6th and got into the Capitol building. And one of the videos that was actually used on trial, okay, was one of hers that she took in the Capitol building. And there was one spot where the people on January 6th broke a glass window on a door. Mm -hmm. And you can hear her going, this is what we did in Idaho with Bundy. I can oh you not, God. but that moment, you know, here in Idaho, when Ammon Bundy and his group were pushing on a door and the window shattered, mm-hmm. 
was near an exact rep replay of what happened on January 6th. <laughs> that was one of the things that Ammon Bundy is currently doing 10 days in jail for, for misdemeanor trespass in the state capitol. Uh, you know, and him and his group have no problem with doxing. Mm-hmm. You know, if a police officer does something they don't like, they find the police officer's name and address and show up at his house. You know, and they've done that. You know, yet for some reason, a lot of these people don't want themselves being doxed. Right. No, you're acting in a public position at this point. You, what you do to someone else, you know, it's fair play. It's fair play. You did it, expect it to be done back. Yeah. You know, um, but we are looking at this sort of entitlement in the GOP. (laughs) Now, our current governor, uh, even though he did go to Trump to ask for an endorsement, he didn't get it. Uh, but it's one of those things. He is an establishment politician in the state of Idaho. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be interesting to see how things play out because our populist right, uh, our pro-Trump crowd, doesn't have the base here that they think they do, especially when it comes down to the wire. We literally, we had a significant, a significant number that's interesting. The state is like 60% Republican, 30%. You, you can see the line every time people show up at the ballot. You know, 60% are going to vote Republican, 30% are going to vote. And usually that 30%, one, the red or the blue, they're going to get 30%. So the rest of the fight is over that 40% that falls in between. Right. And we almost consistently fall on the red side. Now, Governor Little is a businessman. He's an establishment politician. And one of the things he understands as a businessman, especially in agriculture in the state of Idaho, is how to work the federal government, how to work the funding, how to work the subsidies, and understands how things work in Washington, D.C. So when it came time for emergency powers, and he understood that the only way Idaho was going to get all of that money that the federal government was printing the federal government was going to print it. Yeah, it was printed. Yeah. The question is, is were we going to get our chunk of it or were we going to give our chunk of it to somebody else? Well, our governor Little said, you know what? It's printed. They're giving it to us. We're going to take it. Yeah. Now, you, you can complain about it one way or the other, but the thing is, the money was printed. Yeah. The federal government was going to spend it somewhere. Yes, you can use the funds to go ahead and take your state and build your state up and prep it against the inflation that's going to come because the federal government doesn't know how to keep its hands out of the freaking cookie jar. Mm -hmm. Or are you going to go ahead and let everybody else get the head start and you just bumble on through? Right. And see, that's the problem with the whole COVID bailout deal was that it literally taught states who were responsible to not be responsible anymore because oh, yeah. okay who gives a shit <laughs> yeah yeah the money's printed inflation is going to happen federal government has decided the monetary policy for the next 10 years with the covid bailout mm-hmm. okay do we follow you know money spent it's wasted it's gone okay we can go ahead and take advantage of what they're offering 
and at least try and build some sort of insurance with it against, you know, what's coming, because we all know what's coming. Oh, yeah. You know, or do we just say, not nah, dad, I don't need the money right now. I know my rent just went up, you know, 500%, but no, I don't need the money right now. You know, I know my gas just went up an extra 20%. But no, I don't need the money right now. Uh, no, uh, Brad Little made business decisions. Okay, so, and thing is, is, we just didn't have enough power in Congress to say, no, you're not printing the money. You're not spending the money. You're not giving it to anybody. No, we, we didn't have that kind of willpower at the federal level. Right. Well, you know, what's funny is uh, I was talking about this earlier on Twitter. Uh, there was one person who did, and that was Thomas Massey, right? He called the yes. vote. And what happened? Trump said he should be thrown out of the GOP. So this is where I kind of beef with the paleo and the right wing guys is saying, hey, you, you guys are all about Trump. He wanted to throw Massey out, the one good dude in Congress, right? I mean, a, a true child of the Ron Paul revolution. Right. He said, let's not do this. And he got called, you know, what, what was it, a, a, a third rate um, grandstander right. or something like that? Yeah. And that's the guy you want to vote for. And you're going to tell me I should vote for. Fuck you. He want to throw yeah. Thomas Massey out. You know, and, and that's another reason why I was looking at state versus con congressional level. It's like, look, we got so many laws at the Congress level. Everybody's just pointing the fingers around at each other. Yeah. You know, states are going, we can't do it because that's, that's federal. You know, cities are going, we can't do that because that's state. States going, don't do that because we're state and you're only the city. Mm -hmm. You know, so everybody's pointing this finger. We can't do this. We can't do that. You know, and even though this one's coming across as a little bit communist. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go there. Uh, <laughs> we're having a huge housing crisis. Okay. We're having a huge housing crisis. Most of our rental properties are owned by out-of-state corporations right now. Okay, so not only is this one of those things where we're out-of-state corporations are literally bleeding our economies dry because they're taking all of the all of that money, my money, the money I pay for rent, isn't staying in Idaho. It's headed off to California. Sure. You know, the money I pay for food, you know, the guy go to Walmart, you know, the profits from that, it's not staying in Idaho. It's headed off to Arkansas. You know, we don't have small businesses anymore, not anywhere in the United, not on a meaningful scale. Yeah. Okay, we got big box stores. Every big box store you walk into, that's money that leaves your economy. Yeah. And it's on the express fucking train out. It's on the express train out. Yep. Every time you walk into a box store, your profit, your earnings for your community, it's gone. Yep. Just leaves. Um but right now, one of the things we're looking at is a housing crisis. And we have things set up so that our local city, call it socialized housing, Section 8, whatever you want, but used to be you had um, housing, okay, the socialized housing projects, public housing. So uh, ours is the Boise City... Ada County housing something, okay? We as a city, as a county, we cannot come together 
and build public housing. You know, if we want to take 10% of, you know, our income and say, here, Boise, we're giving you this 10%. Build public housing for these people who are homeless. Get them off the street. Make affordable housing so that we can start bringing down the cost of housing in the valley. Make affordable housing so that all of these people who are spending a half million for their little McMansion actually have employees in the area that can stay around to keep making their lattes. <laughs> we can't do that because of a federal regulation. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a federal regulation, no more public housing, can't build anymore. And then Obama comes in and says, in addition to the fact that you can't build anymore, we're actually incentivizing you selling off and privatizing what's left. And so, you know, but the thing is, from a libertarian perspective, why is the federal government, how is it they get to decide how our community handles our housing problem? Right. It's not other business. You know, and there's no reason we can't come together as a city, you know, where our government, where our mayor is actually close enough that if they abuse the power, we can break out the guillotine and take care of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, but literally the feds have told us, no, you can't do that to solve your problem. Oh, that problem. Yeah, no, you can't. You can't do that to solve that problem either. Well, it sounds like there were corporations that basically took up all the property and then, it, well, I mean, it goes well, back to government, right? right? Yeah. They're doing it. I mean, it's documented. Mm -hmm. Okay. BlackRock, yep. and this is another thing that you go back to Trump on, mm -hmm. BlackRock was given free access to the treasury. And they are now one of the largest property owners as a corporation in the United States. He was fighting the deep state. That's what I heard. <laughs> <laughs> he may have been fighting the deep state, but he sold off a significant portion of, you know, the citizenry. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, uh, I, I tweeted out earlier, I said, um, Oh, what the hell was it? Oh, people tweeting out Biden inflation, right? Everybody's been saying Biden inflation. I said, uh, Biden inflation um, is a right wing term popularized to basically um, dodge or move the blame to Joe Biden instead of telling people that Donald Trump had sold out his, you know, the American people to vaccine companies and to the deep state. That's that's really what it was. And like you were saying with BlackRock, they, they're buying up your communities. And really, if you guys would want to build, you know, whatever housing with your own community's money, that's a better use than selling it out to a corporation that uh, can set the price to whatever they want because they got special government privileges to do that. That sounds like a leftist rant, but I mean, it's true. The government granted these people special privileges over your own community. Oh, yeah. You know, and BlackRock's one of them. There's other ones. You take a look at what uh, Fannie Mae did for education. Mm -hmm. You know, that's cap. No, that's not capitalism. That's exploitation. That was straight up socialism. We were sold out to elites. Yep. You know, uh, you can call it capitalism all you want. But the thing is, is it's not the free market capitalism that you, so no. that you talk about. Yeah. Okay. Nothing in America right now, nothing in America right now is free market. Mm -hmm. You know, you can talk about Bitcoin all you want. We still live and die by fiat currency. We live and die by fiat currency that is assigned value by the federal government. Mm -hmm. 
And there's so much that we can't do because the federal government has decided we can't do it. Pharmacore, okay? Medical marijuana, it's a big issue, right? Think of all the things that can be treated with medical marijuana. Post-traumatic stress injury, po you know, uh, traumatic brain injury, uh, cancers, you know, all of these different, the pain management program, the pain management program that you can put into effect with medical marijuana right now beats the holy living hell out of anything that's currently being prescribed through the opioid uh, production cycle. Yeah. It literally, you could grow your own medicine, but they have made it illegal to grow your own pain management system. You literally got to go through this entire process and they jack the prices up. You know, you talk about uh, things that could be solved with diet, you know, diabetes. If we weren't eating at McDonald's and Burger King. <laughs> yeah, dude, don't, don't even get me started on that shit. It's, it's so ridiculous because if you look at it, um, one of my favorite people to listen to when it comes to health and nutrition is uh, Ted Naiman. He's a, a doctor out of Seattle, I think, and he right. really distills nutrition down to protein versus energy, right? So protein is your building blocks, and then your carbohydrates and fats would be your, you know, your energy. Energy. Yeah. Um, so when you look at our food system at large, they really subsidize the hell out of mm -hmm. grains, which are carbohydrates, right? They're very, very low right. in protein, but they're very high in carbohydrates and oils, which are just fats, fats by themselves. But protein's very expensive, right? If you want to get a nice lean steak, that's going to be stupid expensive. If you want to get protein powder, that's very expensive. Um, eggs are about the cheapest source of protein. Um, chicken's a little bit on the cheaper side too. But if you want like a steak, pork or anything like that, the fucking price is ridiculous. But it's economics, right? You mm -hmm. can make ice cream, which is full of highly processed sugars and fats together. And it's so easy to just fucking eat a whole fucking tub of it. But it has no protein in it, so you're not going to be satiated. It's it's just a shitload of calories. Mm -hmm. When you look at nutrition, it becomes an economic thing eventually. And to go back to how government fucks everything up, um, they stuck their hand into private farms, right? You have to go through one of the big yeah. four um, packaging plants, uh, Cargill, Tyson. Uh, I, I always forget the other two. But you have to go through well, them. If that's you're, just the protein aspect. Right, right. You have to go through them if you want to sell meat. So like the farm that's probably a five minute drive from my house, they can't sell me like individual cuts. They yep. have to have it sent off to get packaged and then they can give it to me because they said, um, you know, the meat may be contaminated. You, they're not going to sell me bad fucking meat. And if I do, what do I do? I puke and shit for a day and then I'm good. <laughs> right. You know, and, and that was one of the things that was interesting because Thomas Massey came out with his smart act. Yeah. Okay, you know, it's like, look, this is COVID. We're dealing with supply chain issues. You know, we have people who are calling cattle. Yes, they're just they, I remember lot in the field. You know, because they can't afford to feed them for a market that won't show up to pick it up. Okay, so we were looking at cattle being called in the field. We were looking at uh, here in the state of Idaho. Potatoes were just getting dumped. They had a graveyard for potatoes. You know, you could show up and walk out with 10 pounds. You know, we had people from Texas who showed up, you know, with semi trucks to fill it up and drive potatoes back to Texas. You know, uh, but the supply chains were so busted and those 
while you're talking about the big four packaging, you know, you got three major corporations that own the process 90% of the food made in America. Okay. Same thing. They load it up in a truck, they ship it a thousand miles away to process it. And then after they process it, they ship it a thousand miles back. Mm -hmm. You know, cause you can't buy it locally. Now we had a community here recently that said, you know what? Feds can fuck off. Okay. Somebody wants to sell raw milk to somebody inside the county. They can sell raw milk inside the county. Somebody wants to sell beef. Somebody here in the county, yeah, screw the USDA inspectors and show up on the farm, buy it off the farm, farm to table. Okay. Self-declared food sovereignty. Thomas Massey's SMART Act would have provided that. Yep. Okay. The irony is, is here we are in an agriculture-based state. Uh, full two-thirds of our legislators come from rural communities. They understand, or at least should understand the farm cycle right okay during the last three months that they were in session not a single one of them looked at declaring idaho as a food sovereign state capable of you know doing thomas massey's smart act without allowing the feds to interfere you know literally could have legislated idaho is good for farm to table mm -hmm. you know Go over to your local farm, buy a cow. Yeah. You know, go to your butcher. Your butcher knows the farmer. Farmer, the butcher can go. Butcher the cattle and, you know, sell off how he sees fit. We could have done that. Last 90 days, we could have done that in preparation for the food issues, the food shortages that the Fed is forecasting. Yep. The Fed is saying there are going to be food shortages. Okay. During the last 90 days of session, we could have gone in and said, Idaho is food sovereign. The Fed can't control our food supply because we can literally go over to our neighbors. Now, we had to do a copycat of the Texas abortion bill. No, we had to do some other wackadoodle stuff that, you know, trans rights bill, which affects all of 0.2% of the children in the state of Idaho. Mm -hmm. You know, it was an anti-trans bill. The genital mutilation bill is what they called it. Um, you know, which was funny. You know, nobody in the state of Idaho, there's not a physician who facilitates gender transition in the state of Idaho that does surgery on anybody under the age of 18. Mm -hmm. okay. And the hoops a family has to jump through to get hormone blockers in this state are insane. Yeah, so it's like our Senate, our Senate, this was funny because our House, which is where most of the radicals exist right now, the House was going, no, we need to do this, we need to do this, we need to do this. And they got it passed. And the Senate Majority Caucus, all Republicans basically said, no, we actually talked to the physicians who provide this service, and there isn't anything in this bill that they aren't already doing on their own to ensure the health and welfare of these children that are involved. They went, yeah, uh, the Senate's not going to see this bill. It's done. It's gone. You know, so it's like our GOP can't even come to terms with the most extreme measures of how to control 
the situations in the state. So it's like I'm, I'm watching our Republican Party in the state fracture. Mm-hmm. We got no less than four factions in the Republican Party all vying for some aspect of what it is. Everything from our, you know, uh, evangelical theocrats to our small business to our tough on crime. I love our tough on crime. No, I don't. <laughs> um, but we literally got four different factions of the GOP right now buying for seats at all of the levels, uh, whether it's the gubernatorial, they're fighting over, you know, these people aren't populist enough. You know, they're, they're not against this issue enough. And it's like, I, I catch a certain amount of flack because right now this is the primary season and I'm get, I'm watching rhinos call rhinos, rhinos. <laughs> I've actually tweeted about it. We got rhinos calling rhinos, rhinos here. Because if you step back and you actually take a look at the Idaho Republican platform versus the national Republican platform, and this is one of those things that absolutely destroys people who come here. You know, you get moderate conservatives, mm-hmm. okay? They're red in a blue state. Because I understand that in those blue states, the blue is corrupt, but they're moderate conservatives. And they think, Idaho, it's red. It's solid red. Let's go to Idaho. And they get here and they realize, I'm not sure I thought this completely through. You know, because in Idaho, our politics in Idaho, our Democrats are more conservative than blue state Republicans. That turns a whole deal on his fucking head. <laughs> you know, you can show up in Idaho and yeah, the populists are going, the Democrats are going to take our guns. The Democrats are going to take our guns. Every one of our Democrats, they're sitting in the U.S. legislature, except maybe two of the 12 mm-hmm. are pro-gun. They're all two-way. They all shoot. Yeah. You know, they understand the principles. You know, we got more than a couple of veterans you know, who are pro-gun, who are pro-law enforcement on the Democrat side, you know, and we got people who showing up from California. It's like, yeah, I, oh, wait, wait, wait. Uh. They're not left enough. <laughs> we're, we're, we're not. <laughs> it's funny when, you know, and a California Republican shows up and, you know, they're meeting the Idaho Democrats and they're going, wait, we're still not far enough right for the Idaho Democrats. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, dude, we warned you, you know? Um, so it's funny watching everything fracture right now here for the party. Mm-hmm. It's like, I got a friend who's a Republican. She's running for Senate right now. Uh, she's got her primary coming up. And I've actually talked to her about this. And one of the things that's funny, is, or not funny, Let's go with not funny. It's funny because it's true, but it's not funny. Uh, You actually take a look at the way the national parties spend to support local parties. Okay. The Republicans and Democrats have already agreed how to split up America. Democrats do not invest in red states. Republicans do not invest in blue states. Blue states are going to stay blue. Red states are going to stay red. And they've decided which ones are going to stay which. If you get a viable Democrat candidate running in the state of Idaho for Congress, they will receive 
zero support from the national party. Just like if you got somebody who's running as a Republican, who's viable because they're a moderate, running it anywhere in the I-5 or the I-95 corridors, they will not get backing from the federal campaign. Okay, they've already split up America. And that's one of the things I have trouble, you know, it's documented. It's easy to find. It's easy to understand. The money just isn't spent to support the opposition party in key areas. So it's like two wings of the same bird. You know, left wing, right wing, they've decided everything that's happening in Congress, everything that's happening, you know, it's bipartisan fuckery. Mm -hmm. And literally, we are watching them sell the rest of America down the road because they're too short-sighted and they're all chasing their own personal agendas. They're all chasing them. They're not chasing, this is ironic, they're not actually chasing the development and creation of American culture. Okay. We, this is actually one of my big talking points. America has been deculturalized. We have the culture of empire. Why? Because everybody is American first. Mm -hmm. Okay, there's no representation for heritage. There's no representation for localized culture. There's no, it's this thing that we have to be. It's in all of our education, our nationalized education, our nationalized, you know, you're not training people to be successful in their local communities. Right. with the education that has been prescribed by Washington, D.C. Okay, you know what works in Pennsylvania. Okay, you know what you need to do in order to resolve the economic problems in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania's Iron Town, man. Yep, Steel City. Steel City. You know, it's, it's still... We killed Pennsylvania mm-hmm. when we killed steel work in the United States. Yeah. Yeah, actually, when I drive into my town where I live right here, it says, uh, I want to say one of uh, America's first uh, manufacturing towns or steel towns or something like that. Literally, there's a sign of the town. There's mills all over the place. But you know what? I'm sure you know just as well as I do. All these mills are shut down. Yeah, all the mills are shut down. Yeah, it's all gone. The entire infrastructure has been mothballed. You know, and some of it's been mothballed so long, it's not even fit to hold a rave in anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, but that's the thing is, is in addition to all of the regulation, the environmental regulation that killed steel towns, that's killed mill towns, okay, we now have an education system that will not allow a school in Pennsylvania to teach mining to teach the skills that go into the trades that would support a resurgence of steelwork in Pennsylvania. That's not in the curriculum. It's not allowed. You're not allowed to teach people to be self-sustainable anymore. Right. You know, a kid here in the state of Idaho will receive the exact same education as a kid in Pennsylvania, as a kid in Washington, D.C., as a kid in Southern California. Never mind the fact that in order for those regions to be successful in a cooperative arrangement across the United States. They need to have some way of learning to be specialized 
in what they can do in their region in order to support the entirety of the nation. Right. Return steel, mill, steel mills to Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Teach people how to work the steel. Okay. In the Midwest, it's still our breadbasket, man. Keep teaching people how to farm. Yeah, you start looking at what's happening up in that port cities, San Francisco. Yeah, how much of our education goes into systems in how to train people to be international shipmasters? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we still got fishing. The thing is, is you can't learn about industrial fishing, about being a main lobsterman until you're 18 and can go into the trades because you can sign off on the danger aspect. You know, you can't, they don't teach about that shit in school anymore. Right. Because we got this one universal. One you know, size fits all, yep. One size fits all policy coming out of education, Washington, D.C. You know, we used to complain about what it was, you know, one of the big proponents was education in Hawaii sucks. That was one of the big pushes was we had some states that were just really, really bad at education on a national scale. They lived in Hawaii. What do you need to learn to live in Hawaii? I need to fish. <laughs> you, you need to learn how to fish, you know, and, and there's other things. But the thing is, is it's easy to live in Hawaii. You don't need a lot of education to be able to survive. You know, it's nice weather all year round. Being homeless in Hawaii isn't like being homeless in Pennsylvania. <laughs> oh, fuck no. <laughs> it is It is April. Actually, well, we're, today's a nice day. Last couple of days, we've been down 20s, 30s. Today, it's 66. Yeah. Uh, t tomorrow could be like 30. It it's been a very, very cold April. But yeah, you know, if you're in Hawaii, dude, you could just hang out, grab a, a coconut off the tree and, you know, throw it off the ground hard enough. You'll probably get some, uh, you know, at least some fats, some water out of that. But yeah, yeah. Up here, if you can catch a rabbit, you know, there's lots of deer. So, you know, deer's, you know, pretty good meat. So, you know, if you mm -hmm. want to kill a deer, then you could do that. But yeah, no, you're, you're not going to live very long without shelter here. Yeah. <laughs> So, so there are some aspects, you know, yeah, Hawaii could have improved their education system, sure. but they didn't need Washington, D.C. to tell them to do that. The reason why is because you didn't need an education system in order to be successful in Hawaii. Right. You still have significant tribal presence there uh, or whatever they referred to the indigenous Hawaiians. You know, there's still family networks there. There are still ways to be successful and be part of a community that is successful you know, with the education that they were providing in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. uh, you start taking a look at some of these area, other areas where you've watched skills and trades continue to deteriorate because you can't let somebody learn how to be an electrician with dad at 16. Right. You know, or go over and help handle materials at 16, you know, in a steel mill or work as a hod carrier at 16 because you're on a dangerous job site. You know, our ability to teach our children the skills that we grew up learning, the ability to build our own house. You know, now you got to wait till you're 18 to learn how to build a house. And then by that time, either you're already working in an industry 
you're a middleman or you're on track to be middle management at, you know, Burger King or McDonald's or Walmart of all places. You know, you're not learning to be self-sustainable. You are living in the suburbs, you know, and your parents don't have enough time to teach you how to farm, you know, that little bit of the quarter acre, you know, garden in that quarter acre corner of your yard so that you at least understand that food comes from the ground. Mm -hmm. Right? Why do you need to kill a cow to eat, man? Just go to the grocery store. You got all that prepackaged beef right there. Why do you yeah. kill a cow? <laughs> Where do you think I came from? Um, oh, God. You know, yeah. yeah, you know. How do you think the butcher got the beef? There, there's a process. Um, I but our education has divorced yeah. our children from the process so much that we got kids who, if it doesn't have a pull top on the can, they can't fucking open it. They can't fucking open it. Yeah. So one thing that Peter Schiff, he's my favorite economist, and probably my favorite uh, person to listen to. Um, he always brought up how the minimum wage affects younger people, specifically unskilled people the most, right? So I'm right. an auto mechanic by trade, right? I fix cars right. all day, every day. I work on $100,000 Cadillacs day in, day out. I mean, you name it on a Cadillac, I've done it. Um, if we didn't have a minimum wage, you could have had some 16-year-old kid, me, who was working at McDonald's at 15 and 16, going out and just filling up air and tires, checking oil, doing stuff like that. But yeah. because of certain laws and regulations, you have to have a driver's license to get an emissions license and issue emission stickers. The vehicle has to be on the same side of the street, can't be on too uneven of a concrete because you know the vehicle's unsafe. It's on so many ridiculous rules, right? Right. Um, a minimum wage effectively tell, you know, now that has to make my wage zero, right? I can't work. I can't go fill up tires. I can't check oil. I can't top off washer fluid and get my foot in the door to be a mechanic. I have to go to school for three years through public school. So I have to go to a tech school. And then after that, I do two years in college. And then now I can finally go and work at a dealership, right? And I mean, I worked for a dealership in high school, but like, I couldn't just go do it because in 11th and 12th grade, although I was ready to go out and work, I do all these bullshit classes. And then thank God for my senior year, I only worked or I only went to school Monday, Tuesday, and Friday, but Wednesday, Thursday, I was at work. But it's like, what do I need the education for at this point? If I can already go out and work, let me go earn a damn check. I'd be way more useful to the world anyways. <laughs> right. Yeah. And this is actually, you know, an interesting thing because, my daughter's 15. She's about to turn 16. And I was talking to her. I'm going trades, trades. Let's, let's talk about trades. What do you want to do as far as a trades person goes? And, you know, she's liking the gypsy idea. You know, she wants to travel to the United States and just stop in and do odd jobs wherever, you know, top off her account and then move on to do something else. Mm -hmm. And then I'm starting to talk to the union guys and I'm going, yeah, we, we got, you know, reciprocal union cards, she can go to work anywhere in the United States, but because of federal law, we can't get her into the program until she's 18. And I'm like, and I, I can sign her up and put her in the United States military. She can be a Marine, you know, at 17 years old. And go die. And go <laughs> die. But I can't put her into a trade school. Right. And it, it's like, something here isn't adding up yeah something here isn't adding up yeah and uh there was a point that you were making that i wanted to follow up on 
Um, Being a mechanic, yeah. minimum wage. Yeah, the minimum wage issue. It, right now, the federal minimum wage doesn't exist anywhere in the United States. Honestly, yeah. I think it's about 2% of people in the entire United States making minimum wage. Right? You know, right <laughs> here, Idaho is one of the few that still holds to the federal minimum wage. Okay? Our minimum wage in this state is seven and a quarter. Yep, so is here in Pennsylvania. Okay. Nobody will walk into an employer for less than 15 an hour right now. That's that's about what I see. Uh, Sheets is a real popular gas station around here and in most like the uh, Northeast. And uh, they're all starting Love off. Sheet. Hey, oh, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> uh, I cannot tell you how many times I've been so hammered, stumbling, getting fast food at like two o'clock in the morning completely glossy eyed over just because i'm so fucking hammered and tired getting my food and then you know puking in the morning that but that's you know in the morning you stumble into a sheets and there's that little uh order your order it yourself uh the kiosk in the corner and you're trying that that was through it Uh, i guess that's what i got yeah Uh, the, the, the point is, they all pay, like, they're literally starting off at, like, 12 to $14 an hour. Yeah. Dude, at Arby's, same deal. McDonald's, same deal. Yeah. Dunkin' Donuts. And the, all these places, look, I worked at McDonald's 12 years ago, right? I was 15, 16 years old. I was making $7.25 an hour. I went to a dealership when I was in high school. I was making $7.25 an hour. Now, like, people would laugh at you if you said you wanted to pay, be paid $7.25 an hour. Fucking nobody pays that anymore. Right? Yeah, and that's one of the things about the last two years. Okay, mm-hmm. the last two years has made the libertarian argument for minimum wage. Mm-hmm. You know, no, the effect of minimum wage in the United States does not exist. Nobody yeah. will work for anything close to what the federal minimum is. You know, people are actually competing for labor right now to the point where you know. Like you said, 2% are working for minimum wage somewhere in the United States. And chances are most of those 2% are actually working in states with an extremely high state minimum wage like California. Mm-hmm. You know, Idaho, seven and a quarter. Nobody's working for anything less than 14 right now. Yeah. Except my daughter. She's 15. She's working at Dairy Queen for, you know, 12. You know, but that's the, that's the argument. Well, they're just a kid, so we're not going to pay them as much. It's like... Yeah. Okay. Uh, but again, that's one of those things. She can't go into a trade till she's 18. Mm-hmm. You know, so she's, she's stuck with universal standardized education coming down from Department of Education, Washington, D.C. and Secretary Betsy DeVoe. And so what are we doing? Mm-hmm. We are not teaching our kids to be successful in the communities they're growing up in. We're teaching them to be able to be transplanted from one anywhere in the United States to anywhere else in the United States. Yeah, because we haven't paid taxes anywhere, so it doesn't matter if they know. It, it doesn't matter where the community is, right? We've separated families from themselves, and yeah. we've encouraged people to just be reliable tax cattle anywhere they go. When really, it should be that our tax dollars go more to our communities rather than somewhere else. And we go to our neighbors in hard times. We go to our churches in hard times. We have, you know, strong family connections. So that way we don't have to worry about an overburdening government to handle our problems. And I've, I've been beating the drum about this ever since I started the show is that we need to look local. You know, it, we should be able to go get a steak from the butcher up the road. We should be able to go get beef trim or bacon or whatever you want, the vegetables from your neighbor's garden. Right. That shit's well, important. That's cool. You shit. Got to, admit to the corporate 
middleman who lobbied heavily for his ability to buy wholesale and sell resell to the same communities that he bought the shit from. Yeah. You know, if we were to walk into Washington, D.C. right now and say USDA and FDA, you're gone, you're done. Mm -hmm. You know, you've proven that your executive level organization, your executive level agency no longer supports the American people. You're gone. Mm -hmm. You think of how many jobs would be created in the United States, you know, instantaneously making sure that you can open up a slaughter plant in your city in order to process cattle. And, you know, you don't have to count on those one of four meat packaging, you know, organizations. You know, you can set it up and you can run it. You know, a few things that you want to be cognizant of, like, you know, don't run the slaughter plant upstream, you know, uh, yeah. population center. You know, that's one of the things I will give the EPA. We, in Boise back in the 70s, we actually had a slaughterhouse, you know, that was upstream of the Boise River from Boise. Oof. So it's like they were just dumping the slaughter material straight into the river and it was floating right through the center of, center of the city. Uh, yeah, you can't do that, bro. <laughs> no, 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 not anymore. Not anymore. You know, as much, as, as much money as we've sunk into river walks, no, we're, we're not going to do that again. They're, the city's not going to let that happen. No, it's like, no, that's scenic. We like to be able to float the river. If you're dumping blood and guts into it, yeah, it's, that's not going to work. Uh, um, you know, but we've learned a lot over the past 50 years now about how to manage waste, how to manage product. You know, all we need to do is strip out some of the barriers to entry that are largely manufactured. Yeah. You know, and people yeah. be able to go into business for themselves doing an awful lot of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, honestly, and that, that should be the way to go. Um, I kind of wanted to pivot to your experience in the military. So this had <laughs> this subject in particular had fascinated me a couple years ago um, when I was when Jordan Peterson kind of became big and I was listening to him and Jocko Willink a lot. And right. learning about the psychology of military and how people are essentially trained to kill, right? Well, right. you read a book like Ordinary Men, and it's just a consistent push where you move people slightly past where they're comfortable with. And then before you know it, they're from where they originally were to five miles away doing horrible things you couldn't imagine. Yeah. Um, and obviously, I'm not here to postulate and say that you did any of these things, but um, – your experience in the military, what was it like overall? Because it seems like there's a lot of camaraderie and it seems like it's positive emotionally and mentally for people, but also on the flip side, sometimes it's not so much that way. Like there's, there's kind of a lot of strings at play here. Right. And, and this is actually an interesting discussion. The reason why is because everybody who goes into the United States military, regardless of branch, Okay, everybody goes through boot camp. You know why you go through boot camp? Okay, boot camp is about reprogramming. It's about rewiring. Mm -hmm. Okay, they put you under high stress. And if you're looking at it from the idea of post-traumatic stress injury, okay, we all get wired. We use, they use traumatic stress in order to rewire your fight or flight mechanisms. Now, if you have cumulative 
post-traumatic stress injuries. What they call that is complex. So now you've got layers of all of this stuff that rewire. So it's one of the problems people have when they start decompressing and unpackaging all of their traumatic stress injuries is it's like, okay, I, I just cleared out that programming and boom, what pops out from underneath it? Oh yeah, that childhood trauma. Oh yeah, that relationship trauma. Oh yeah, that rape trauma that, you know, I forgot about, you know, from way back when that was overwritten by this other trauma that was more recent. So it's like boot camp is trauma. It's designed to be that way so that it overwrites all the other trauma so that they get the behavior patterns that they need for you to do what you need to do to be a good soldier. Okay. And it's real. They can do it. And they can do it in eight weeks. All right. That's crazy to think. It is, but it's a reality. Now, for the most part, they generally don't abuse it excessively because everybody still has their underlying values. They still have their core values that they went into the military with. And a lot of those values, they still want to be able to maintain. Okay, they want to make sure that you believe in teamwork. They want to make sure that you believe in camaraderie. They want to make sure you continue to maintain your faith in God, you know, and all these other things that are core to the value of somebody who believes, okay? Because that's part of it. They want people who believe. Right. In institution, who believe in God, who believe in the need to defend those ideals and those institutions, mm -hmm. okay? They can still make you do all of the rest of that evil stuff because you're doing it for a good reason. But at the same time, you still need to be able to build the camaraderie and maintain the teamwork. Right. Okay, so here you find yourself in a situation where you're being asked to do violence on behalf of America, on behalf of God and country and family. You know, you're being sent someplace to do this because this is the right thing to do to preserve American freedoms at home. And you believe it. Mm -hmm. I believed it. <laughs> yeah and, and you believe but you, you actually step back and you start walking it back and you go i did this or i allowed this to happen or i didn't do enough to stop that and you're walking back through and you're going why why did i allow that to happen why did not i not take measures to stop that particular event from happening um now, I was generally pretty lucky because by the time the Iraq and Afghan wars had kicked off, I had transitioned out of combat arms. So I started out as a forward observer, uh, 2nd 75th Ranger Regiment, and I actually spent my three days in Haiti so I could get my Armed Forces Expeditionary Badge. Um, and I transferred over to military intelligence. So I was doing an awful lot of analytics work in Afghanistan and Iraq during my four tours in the sandbox. Uh, so my direct action involvement, you know, never involved me actually pointing a gun at anybody. You know, but it's the same time I'm working from the intelligence side of things and we're getting told things 
you know, from certain sources that, you know, these are words you need to watch out for. You know, if you have a high priority target who's talking about this action, you know, you need, you need to move on it. You need to escalate. And then you learn out late, no, that was actually a wedding, man. Um, we just recommended bombing a real wedding. <laughs> it's like, mm, yeah, can we not do that again? <laughs> you know, so it's like, I did the battle damage assessments from an intelligence view. I had access to the imagery, you know, uh, voice communications, the things that happened before and after leading up to. I had various experts who would come back and talk about, you know, other aspects of intelligence gathering and what worked and what didn't work. You know, and you end up finding some interesting situations that you never, ever, ever thought of. Um, the one I like is the ground penetrating radar. We actually had airborne uh, platform that go around, you know, sending ra radar pulses into the ground to try and determine whether or not there was significant movement, you know, tractors, cars, assemblies of metal. Um, the interesting thing is, you know, the disc tillers on the back of tractors? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, you're, you're from rural America. Yeah, so you've seen those, okay? If somebody's out in the back 40, disking up their backyard, the uh, radar signature off of those rotos uh, casts enough signature to look like it's a convoy of about 20 Toyota Hiluxes. <laughs> oh, I, I think I know where this is going. So that could get pretty bad. That could get very, very you know, bad. So, you, so you're getting this radar signature that there's a convoy. They're, they're getting ready to attack. There's an assembly. And it's like you, you got inbound coming and it's like i'm not seeing the trucks man are you, are you sure there's actual trucks here no it's not truck you know that one was fortunate because it was called off somebody went this isn't making any sense i'm not seeing you know a convoy of 20 toyota hilexes here i i, I see a guy tilling his farm <laughs> <laughs> like uh yeah yeah i don't shoot the farmer's tractor <laughs> yeah he's not hurting nobody he's not hurting anybody and if you keep shooting all the farmers that are tilling up their fields uh, we're gonna have to provide more food <laughs> yeah well you know what i think i remember you talking or you it, it was either you or justin talking about um handing over copious amounts of cash to people oh. in all the communities and, and this was one of the things that was interesting because my third tour in Afghanistan. You know, uh, the first two, I was at higher headquarters. You know, the third one, I was there with someone I consider rather incompetent commander. Uh, but we were working directly with the third Kandak along the Afpak border. The third Kandak was border police. And one of the, re one of the reasons why this particular deployment hurt me so much was I found out that my brigade commander, this was an army colonel, um, was taking all of my information that I was gathering and handing it unadulterated over to an Afghan general who would then take the intelligence we had done the analysis on and go out and ambush um, competing tribes, steal the opium, 
that they'd been smuggling across the border. Kill the smugglers and then sell it himself. Holy fuck. Wow. So it's like we would have operators that were headed out to a site and they would show up on site and all the smugglers were already dead. I bet you that general was living damn good. He's dead now. Uh, well, he, he was. <laughs> he was. He he lasted all about two years, three years in the position before he was assassinated. Yeah, well, <laughs> that, that kind of makes sense. You know what yeah. they say? You live by the sword, you die by the sword. Yeah, he, he didn't live much longer by the sword. Uh, <laughs> this was one of those things. He was going out. He was killing, ambushing and killing you know, smugglers from the rival tribes, stealing the product, selling it himself. And then he would go back to the families of the people he killed and pay the blood price, which also didn't equal what the profit he had made selling the drugs. Oh, dude, th this is this sounds like the American government. This sounds exactly like our you government. Know, <laughs> and the thing is, um, our commander actually gave this same general a certain amount of money. He said, go out and build a school. Okay. He went and he built the school. And then the commander occupied it because it was the strongest fortified position that had been created in his region. I, okay. Yeah, I remember you mentioned that. Yeah, that's... You know, in, 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 that was the sort of fiascos we had going. You know, we were talking about agricultural support, you know, and it's like, here, we need you to grow wheat. And they'd take the money and they'd go out and they'd start patrolling the fields and you would find that, no, they were still growing the cash crops. They were still growing the opium poppies. You know, they were still doing all of that, but they were taking the USAID and saying they were doing things and then continue to do what they needed to, to maximize the profits. You know, short-term goals. Afghans have the same issue. Short-term goals. Let's take care of the next 90 days. Next 90, because you can grow an opium product, uh, opium you know, for profit in under 90 days, you know, so it's the 90 day cycle that we have here in America, you know, no sustainability, get me the maximum profit out of the next 90 days. We can't. Yeah. Kick the can down the road. If there's any yeah, big problems kick the can down the road, cause I won't have to worry about it. I'll be assassinated by that. Uh, in the meantime, I'm going to live big, uh, yeah. you know, but you continue to see that problem, that entire thought process and Karzai, president Karzai, he was taking kickbacks from this general this general got appointed because of his friendship through Karzai. You know, Karzai's brother was down there. He was getting, uh, you know, the mob money too. Everybody was getting their cut all the way up. You know, and then you start seeing people get assassinated. And you go, oh, well. Yeah, and there were other things. I've talked to other people. So one of the big problems that you have in Afghanistan, particularly in the Southern cultures, is when the Greeks went through, the Greeks brought in an awful lot of real bad behavior. So pederasty is a big issue in most of Southern Afghanistan and uh, some of the other areas. And we actually ran into a number of situations where the opponents, the uh, Taliban, had been able to access some of these kids that had been raped and actually got them to wear suicide vests in to take out the people that had been abusing them. And there was 
one encounter where a uh, young kid had actually managed to get in and get access. Um, and some of the officers in my unit at the time actually took shrapnel from it because they were close enough when the kid got in to take out his abuser. Now, I got a friend who's in the Idaho State Legislature, same situation. He was working uh, talk command and control in uh, Hellman province when a similar situation. Kid got a hold of an AK-47, proceeded to take out the guy's personal security detachment, which also included some American Marines. Oh. Yeah, he did not come out of that as intact as he would have liked. Yeah, so you're looking at these situations where you start to realize how many atrocities have we supported as Americans, by choosing the allies we chose in Afghanistan. You know, one of my first trips, their second, it was my second trip. Um, we had a big bomb go off just outside of the perimeter. Mm -hmm. Like about 30 minutes later, I found out what the deal was with the bomb. The uh, local warlord had been paying bounties on unexploded ordnance out in the fields. Uh, you know, so the kids would go out and they'd find the mines and they'd harvest the mines and take them back in and collect the bounty from the warlord. Mm -hmm. So the warlord could go out and replant them somewhere else because uh, he, he was our paid security. And in this one particular instance, I uh, found out what had happened was a couple of eight-year-old boys, a couple of cousins, were out collecting bounties and they took a hammer and chisel to one of the uh, 500 pound munitions, cluster bomb munitions that uh, were there from the Russians. Oops. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> you know, wow. but those kids wouldn't have been out, you know, collecting those bounties on those if we weren't paying the warlord in order to play funny games with them. It, it seems like the pattern I'm hearing is consistent incompetence and essentially just money-making operations. A jobs program is where you just yeah. money in, money out. Money in, money out, jobs program. You know, continue to watch that. You know, yeah, we got in. We got to do some good things. I remember my first tour walking around and seeing some things, you know, the aid missions, because, you know, we'd have a clinic on base. And two days a week, we let, you know, all of the locals come in and come to the clinic. You know, so you'd see grandpa hobbling in, you know, with one of his grandkids. That was the opportunity to be seen at the clinic. You know, you'd see an awful lot of grandparents bringing in granddaughters. Because the only people they trusted with their granddaughters was the U.S. Army Clinic. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, so you start to see a lot of this disparity and it's like so, a lot of it just didn't quite sink the first time. You know, you see it and you go, oh, that's nice. And then after a little bit of time and experience and you start to understand what's really going on and you go, this is dystopian as fuck. And we're facilitating that level of dystopia in this nation. You know, and it's like one of the things right now, and this is actually bizarre because after Biden pulled out, after Trump negotiated and then Biden pulled out, you know, during the 20 years we were in Afghanistan, 
the population in Afghanistan literally doubled or tripled. Single generation, you know, the population tripled. That was the benefit. Despite everything that was happening, despite all of the deaths that were caused because U.S. targeted munitions were hitting hospitals, you know, and all of the rest of that, our food distribution program and the aid we were providing, Afghan population nearly tripled. Okay. Here we are. We left. Our USAID support left. The supply chain providing food to these communities left. And now you're looking at food insecurity all across Afghanistan, and families are literally selling their kids to these pederast warlords in order to feed the rest of the family. You know, no wonder why people don't dig into foreign policy much, but like... Because no, it's ugly. Because even when we do good, we fuck it up. It's so hard to believe that we're the good guys in any capacity. When you, like, just, you scratch the surface, you're like, oh, we're funding a genocide. And then, like, mm -hmm. what you just mentioned here, I didn't know some of this, but you, the way you laid out was perfect tripling the population because they have it's economics right we gave them the false signal that there's security and that you're going to be provided for we essentially gave them welfare and then when you take it away look what happens shit falls right the fuck apart because we sent them the wrong economic signals so these people thought it was good times you know hey <laughs> the american military is here to take care of us and hand us cash let's you know let the good times roll and then whenever yeah. the check gets cut off now you have a generation of children that will now never know prosperity and a lot of them may die or i mean it's i can't even fat we can't fathom that here in america no. we can't fathom what that would be like not yet <laughs> not not yet <laughs> i yeah you know, I, I hate to be that downer guy but you know in a lot of ways that's what we did in the last six months we have set up the, United, the U.S. economy for the final fail. Yeah. Really? You know, we have the 1930s German hyperinflation. You know, our fiat currency, we've printed so much of it. Mm -hmm. It's quickly becoming, you know, we still attribute some value to it. We still attribute enough value. You know, we like to think it still had the same value that it had six months ago. We know better. Yep. But we like to think that, which is why we're still using it, why we're still going to the store. It's comfy. And, you know, we've gotten comfortable with this. You know, 200 years of U.S. currency. 1971, we went off the Bretton Woods standards. Before that, FDR, you know, took Americans off the gold standard. Mm -hmm. You know, Nixon finally did us in in 71. The thing is, is with Nixon doing it in 71, he went to the fiat currency and we funded war after war after war. Yep. You know, the war economy without the war repercussions, mm -hmm. you know, has fueled the American economy for 50 years now. So here we are in a situation where, you know, the International Monetary Fund is dependent upon the U.S. currency. It's been using it, you know, since its inception. We have overprinted and overextended ourselves. 
Russian economy has already recovered on the ruble because supposedly, and whether it's true or not, the simple rumor that Russia has gone to the gold standard. They were buying a lot of gold, and so is China. Yeah. So with this whole Russia and China, you know, the next two superpowers in the world, because we all know India is not going to be able to step up. No, no, their population, they don't do very good at all. Yeah, they'll collapse under their own weight if they actually try and stand up as a real world power. I, I think I think China will pro- may see a similar fate just because their economy is such a mess and their demographics and their military. The China's a whole nother mess. And this is sorry to kind of go off on a little side yeah. tangent, but yeah, by all means, because that's one of the other things is it's foreign yeah. policy. The, the 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 right wing is so terrified of China. But they fundamentally don't understand the economics and like the situation China's in, right? They're worse than us when it comes to economics. Their male population hates their government. So do you really think that male population that's been told, hey, that thing swinging between your legs, you better watch how many times you put that in there because <laughs> guess what? We're coming for you if you know if if you fuck around and yeah. find out. Do you really yeah. think they're gonna want to come fight over here? Or even go to Taiwan and forget that Taiwan, there's not, not even a good spot to drop people off. Right. The train on Taiwan, that's all rocky and mountains. They're going to have to fly shit in. And we've been arming Taiwan to the teeth. Do you yeah. really think China's going to do this and that they'll like live? No, China will fall. China's a, a, you know, this fiat empire, much like us. I always joke, you know, us in China, we're two house of cards in a windy valley waiting to see who falls first. Because that's the really what The tiger and the paper eagle. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which is scary because when you step back and you take a look at it, the most stable nation on the globe right now, you know, despite this fiasco with Ukraine, is still Russia. Yeah, actually. But their GDP you know. is that of New York's, right? Or I think it's right. less than New York's. But right. once again, but because they're not a world empire, and that's what people – this is the problem with the war propaganda going on right now is that people don't understand fucking Putin doesn't want to take over the world. Can't fucking do that. No. You know, we, we, we've been maintaining an empire for like 20 years. We can't afford to do that. The fuck makes you think Russia's going to be able to do the same fucking thing? Putin doesn't want to do that. He Russia just said, doesn't want to know. Yeah, he just said leave Ukraine the fuck alone. And guess what? We kept fucking around, pushing weapons into Ukraine, and they started firing over into Russia. They started killing people. And he said, all right, I've had enough. And he said, all right, well, I'll be in Kiev. Surely enough, here we are. And And that's one of those things. Okay, the United States has this amazing capability. We have what we call force projection. Yeah. We can put a division and two supercarrier fleets anywhere in the world in under 48 hours. Yeah. Anywhere in the world in under 48 hours. Okay. That's off the shore of any country. The range of our aircraft, we put a super fleet carrier or a supercarrier fleet anywhere in the world the aircraft that are on that fleet will be able to reach any nation regardless of how landbound it is. We have that capability. It's maintained by fiat currency, but we have that capability. We have that force projection. There is no other nation in the world with that level of force projection, mm-hmm. period. Russia can't match it. China can't match it. You know, 
And for that matter, nobody in the European Union can match it. We are the only nation capable of doing that right now. So why are we worried about Russia? Why are we worried about China? Now, one of the things that Russia and China have done that we haven't is they fortified their defenses. They have the capability of stopping anything we send into their airspace. Right. Okay. So literally, it's a stalemate. It's not that we can't put troops there, but any troops we do put there... <laughs> it's a suicide mission. It's a suicide mission. Yeah. You know, uh, Russia's already demonstrated their hypersonic missiles. Okay, they don't have the force projection to put those hypersonic missiles close enough to the U.S. to mean anything. Mm -hmm. But they're good enough to keep their airspace clear. Yeah. Yeah, so... It, from a foreign policy aspect, we're at a stalemate right now. We can't take them. They can't take us. We yeah. can't go into their airspace and own it. They can't project into U.S. territory. But as the U.S. is, we want to be the, you know, the U.S. global hegemon, right? We want to be right. the king shit of fuck mountain. We got to be the empire. And, you know, now with the way Russia and China are going, we may not be that way. I don't think either one of them are going to take over the world. I think it's just going to be kind of the way it should always be. Hey, we're a bunch of sovereign nations. We trade with each other. You know, you got something we want. We'll send you this. You send us that. Let, let's all, let's just all have fucking drinks, man. That's the way it should be. We don't have to have this empire. You know, you know, the whole multinational spy movie, you know, all of them sitting down, you know. Uh, <laughs> a Chechen, a U.S. Marine. And it has off battalion soldier. I'll walk into a bar in downtown Kiev. Uh, they're all on the same side for a change I, you know it's like didn't I see you, <laughs> you, you but, I mean literally that's where we're headed at this point you know mm -hmm. um, the globalization of the world has so deculturalized us that the, that the idea of loyalty to a particular culture is almost alien well, it's, yeah. it's actively, people actively campaign against that. They don't want you to have loyalty to your community or anything like that earlier, or, you know, anymore. We we're kind of hitting on that earlier, but yeah, they don't, they don't like this. And it has such a dirty war or a dirty ring to it, but nationalism, right? Where you're proud yeah. of your country, you're proud of your culture. I don't see anything wrong with that, but obviously within good reason, you should be proud of your culture if it's a good culture to uphold. Yeah. But, but that's one of the other things is, is they campaign against the localization of culture. Okay, we don't like that you identify as an Idahoan before you identify as an American. We don't like that you identify as a Pennsylvanian or a Philadelphian or a Pittsburghian. Yenzer. Yenzer. You know, it's like, why aren't you identifying as an American? You think, oh, aren't, well, aren't we, why, why can't, you know, why can't I cheer the Seattle Seahawks? Why is it bad for me to cheer the Seattle Seahawks? Well, keep, you know, but you, you get into this thing. It's like, why do you want to be, you, you got the populace that are saying, no, we're all Americans. We all got to be Americans. First and foremost, you know, sacrifice for the nation, for the good of the nation. It's like the nation doesn't give a flying fuck about me. Fuck no, they don't. <laughs> you know, some Wall Street banker in New York doesn't give a flying fuck about me. 
my mom gives a fuck about me. My neighbor gives a fuck about me. Yep. One who complains about the extra noise I make on a Friday night, you know, cares more about me than that Wall Street banker does. Mm-hmm. So why is it wrong for me to identify as a Boisean before I identify as an American? You know, why can't I cite the great things about Boise culture? Yeah, I love Boise culture. And it's ironic because we are multicultural. Not everybody knows that. Not everybody. Here's this little place in Boise, Idaho. Isn't Idaho known for neo-Nazis? You know, didn't we have that Hayden Lake compound up north, you know, with all the neo-Nazis? But the thing is, is Idaho has accepted refugees from every major diaspora since 1970. We have Vietnamese restaurants here. We have Korean restaurants. We have Sudanese restaurants. We have, you know, if there is a Bosniaks, we got Bosniaks here. Mm. We have a Bosniak Mosque <laughs> in Boise, Idaho. Mm-hmm. Now think about it. Christian Nationalist Central. <laughs> we got a Bosniak Mosque, you know, out in the suburbs here in Boise. Yeah, so Boise is a welcoming community. It's multicultural. We have, you know, Somalians, uh, Kenyans. You know, all these people come in, you can walk into just about any mom and pop. And these are all mom and pop restaurants, man. All mom and pop pop restaurants. You know, you got mom, dad, grandma, you know, the daughters and the sons are all working the restaurant. You walk in, this is authentic. Yeah. Yeah. And you got so many people that are scared of multiculturalism that don't even know these restaurants exist. (laughs) The irony is not yet dawned. You know, they don't know that we have a Bosniak mosque, <laughs> you know, with real, real world war criminals. I mean, no shit. Bosnian war criminals that managed to get through the filter and land in Boise, Idaho. Yes, we have Bosniak war criminals that nobody knows about living here in Boise. <laughs> you know, and this is a reality of where I live. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a massive resettlement from the uh, Japanese internment camps come here and live in Boise. We have a Basque community from the Basque diaspora, you know, that's long established, you know, 100 years of history, you know, with that here. You know, so Boise has this multicultural and heritage, multi-heritage history that is just fucking incredible. But it's like, if you don't know that you're looking at it, you don't know what you're seeing. And it's, and I think that's one of the things that I actually brought back from Afghanistan and Iraq more than anything else, was this awareness of not, how to explain it. Um, because it's not multicultural in the way everybody likes to say multicultural is bad, 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 bad. Yeah. No, these are individual communities that exist, that celebrate their heritage and practice their cultural history without being imposing in what they do. So it's like you have 
a multicultural environment without that deculturalized imposition. Right. Okay. Yeah, basically, these different communities, different cultures are allowed to celebrate the way they want to celebrate without interfering with you. And really, I I don't see any problem with that. That's perfectly fine. So long as, you know, it's it's libertarian, right, where you respect other people's private property and their culture, their cultures, their customs, as long as they're not violating somebody else's. Yeah. You know, and so you can have. And you can go in and you can celebrate, you know, Japanese Day. You got a Japanese day. You go down to the Anne Frank Memorial and you talk about the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima. And then everybody goes back home. You know, uh, you got to talk about the internment camps in Camp Minidoka. You know, you got a day for that where, you know, Japanese Culture Day and uh, you got Basque Day where everybody's talking about the Basque diaspora and how Idaho is so welcoming for all of these people. You know, they got kicked out after Franco's, you know, cleansing. <laughs> you know, and you and you look at all of these different histories and heritages and you go, you know, this is the reason why we seek peace. Because we want to give the children of these people the opportunity to continue to promote the goodness of what was in the culture before they were forced from, you know, wherever it was they came from. Yeah. You know, whether it was the Vietnamese diaspora following uh, the Vietnam War, whether you were looking at uh, post-Korean diaspora, where people were coming from Korea and settling here. Uh, you know, it's just this opportunity to see all of these develop side by side and coexisting. Yeah, you know, and you go, this is a goodness. Because the goodness that came from each of these cultures continues to exist and support the goodness of other cultures. You know, we're not getting this watered down Disney-fied, you know, culture of empire that's been sold to us by Hollywood anymore. Mm-hmm. This is, no, the, this is authentic cooking. Not only did they pass down the recipes, yeah. you know, they passed down the traditions, they passed down, you know, the tea cup rich, you know. So you get to go in and participate without being committed. And it's, whereas, God, everybody's fucking Disney, Disney, Disney. You know, what's what's China like? Well, let's go watch Mulan and find out. No! You know. uh, Oh, geez, there goes the dog. Yeah, dude, it's, (laughs) there's something beautiful about that. And uh, it kind of made me think of my dad. My grandmother had passed away about 10 years ago. And I, it, it just occurred to me, he was telling me about how he would roll out dough. And he said, you know, I really wish I could call my mom right now and ask her for just that little tip about how to make this specific apple pie. It's, it's, it sounds so insignificant, but when you think about like the cultural impact of that, where, you know, my grandmother, his mom, told him specifically how to make this specific recipe, right? My mom taught me different tips on how to cook stuff. Um, You know, you have different people that you work with that maybe smoke meats in a certain way, and then they kind of pass it on to you. And just kind of how shit gets passed down. There's all different cultures that do that with all different foods of all different flavors. I'm such a fucking fat kid at heart, right? I used to be 60 pounds heavier at one point. (laughs) So 
it's it's so neat to go and experience other cultures other cultures foods the way they eat and even understand like their norms around eating and just to see the different you know just the way these cultures kind of manifest and operate together it's really really interesting and it's it's more than just you know well this culture is very tight-knit tight-knit in their family structure this culture is very religious there's all sorts of different small things and i see a lot of that in pittsburgh it sounds like you see a lot of that in boise yeah but the thing is is it all works right and the one thing that doesn't work is when we send kids to this universal policy school where they're separated from their parents who are teaching them how to cook who are teaching them the family traditions you know who are teaching them to overcome you know the family curses and the family you know things that it's like these were the things that were wrong about our family the way we were growing up and i want to teach you how not to do what we did wrong we're taking kids out of those opportunities to learn you know we're teaching we're not only just dumping them into this mishmash, you know, this, the American melting pot, the American goulash, you know, that's overcooked and oversaturated and nothing tastes good anymore just because there's no distinctive flavors anymore. You know, we're, (laughs) God, I hate talking about the American melting pot because every time I mention it, you know, the other thing that comes up is, you know, we're not a melting pot. We're more like a tossed salad. God, did you have to use that word, man? <laughs> no, it's, it's like, what's wrong with being able to walk 10 miles and be able to buy something at the Quaker Mart? You know, you, you guys got the Quakers there. You got, you know, 15, 20 miles, head out to a farmer's market. You know, there's oh, all over the place. Family or a Quaker family somewhere that's got the little roadside stand that you can pick something up from. Mm-hmm. Okay. What you buy at the Mennonite or the Quaker, you know, roadside stand is going to be significantly different than what you're picking up off of the Kroger shelves. Right. You know, there's just something about it that invites you to be part of that, to support the continued existence of that community within your community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here you got Kroger and it's like, yeah, here's the same stuff from the same four major producers every, that everybody else in the United States eats the exact same trash. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Over-processed trash. Um, you know, so your ability to set up your communities to be successful is overwhelmed by this universal policy. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I have this opportunity here in Boise and through my travels to be able to say, you know what? There are different ways to do things. And even within communities, communities can be successful with sub-communities that just want to do something a little bit different. There's no reason we all have to be identical to be successful. Absolutely. I agree, man. Dude, we've been shooting the shit for probably closer to two hours. I can't believe it. It, it, Fucking time flew by. I got a couple (laughs) questions I ask every guest. Um, Oh, yeah? Yeah, let's, uh, we'll start off with the first one. What does uh, liberty look like to you? Liberty is an end of the state. The ability to just be a part of your community and work with the communities adjacent. 
Yeah. Um, we all understand that there's certain things that you don't do. You don't hurt people. You don't take their shit. Mm -hmm. You don't take people and you don't hurt their shit. Uh, and ultimately that's what it is. Be able to return to that state where we are able to produce and provide for our communities with enough extra that we can share with community adjacent, you know, in a way that creates positive living for everybody. And that's really what it's about for me. You know, and there's a number of people who are going, what do you mean this community thing? That's communism. That's dude. No, uh, extended families. It's mm -hmm. being able to support the family, support your neighbors, support your community. You know, as long as your community respects your own individuality, be part of the community so that everybody thrives, so that everybody is better. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, what does health look like to you? Does what? Health. Health. Um, eating good food. <laughs> Using natural medicine. You know, get away from this over-processed supply chain stuff. You know, I want to be able to walk out, you know, head over to the farmer's market, pick some apples harvested from a local orchard and bake that apple pie. Beautiful. <laughs> you know, uh, I want to be able to head over to the grass fed, you know, to the farmer who's raising the grass fed beef mm -hmm. you know, and be able to say, I want a quarter. And they go, oh, I got three other people who want a quarter too. Okay, and I got a butcher who'll process it all for you guys. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to be able to do that. So I'm getting grass fed, not none of this, you know, feedlot make weight water down beef. You know, mm -hmm. it was harvested straight out of that field. Yeah, they didn't even put it on a truck, you know, to ship it to the, you know, they processed it in the field. Yep. Like, walked it up. Done. Here's your quarter. Um, you know, and that's what I'm talking about. A return to knowing our food. A return to knowing our medicine. You know, and being able to talk to people about, you know, we don't need to get you vaccinated in order to be healthy because we know how to make your immune system strong naturally. I get the polio thing. You know, but, uh, you know, there are times when you don't need all the extra stuff. You don't have to outsource your immunity. Yeah, you don't have to outsource your immunity. You can build it strong. You can build strength. You can build health of mind through the foods you eat by making sure that you're eating stuff that is core to the environment you're growing up in. Yeah. Uh, so that's what it is, health for me. It's being able to get out of that broken supply chain that poisons our food. Mm -hmm. You know, do the farmer's market stuff and food, farm to table, farm to fork, or however you want to phrase it. You know, if we can return to that, yeah, we, we may not be living with the same amount of tech as we do. You know, you may have to give up two or three of those guitars. Oh, don't say that. <laughs> you know, but uh, being able to return to that, you know, just put a little more effort into living better. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's uh, definitely what I push mostly people, um, you know, specifically libertarians to do is try and be a little bit healthier than you were yesterday. And as long as we're doing that, we're uh, we're doing the best we can. Um, Joe, this has been an awesome conversation, man. Where can everybody find you? Uh, I have my website, uh, Idaho Joe for Congress. That's Idaho Joe, J-O-E, four is in the number four, congress.org. In addition to that, I have ID Joe, number four, Congress, on my Twitter. That's uh, ID Joe for Congress. Twitter, I got Facebook accounts, uh, Cup of Joe. The links in those are in my Twitter account as well. So you can find those there. And of course, you can find me on the Idaho Congress, on the Idaho ballot next November. What is that? Six months now? Seven months? I'll be uh, on the November. Yes, seven months. This November. Yeah. Yes, ballot on this November for first congressional district. So uh, pay attention to what's going on. I also do an awful lot of work with Kind Idaho, which is Idaho's medical marijuana consortium. We work on legalizing medical marijuana for a number of reasons. Uh, traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress injuries, uh, veteran support, health, uh, sanity, and of course, stress and anxiety relief, and all the good things, cancer. So if you get a chance, look up Kind Idaho, legalized marijuana. Oh, yeah, man. I think that's uh, something all libertarians would get behind. I've never smoked personally, but uh, I definitely think it solves a lot of issues for a lot of people. So it's for the greater good. And, you know, oh, even it, though it, it, it is. And it, it's one of those things I like about it because. If you can legalize it in such a way where you are allowed to do the personal grow and you are allowed to start a small business in your state, it takes away from corporate America. It shortens your supply chain and it alleviates that ability like the MORE Act to make living life. That's one of the things I hate about U.S. Congress or about the federal government right now is how much living life is it illegal these days? Yeah. You know, um, but that's a big thing. You know, legalize it, keep it local, be able to do your own stuff, grow your own stuff, grow your own food, grow your own medicine, you know, uh, reinvent Thomas Massey's SMART Act, be able to shorten those supply chains so that, you know, federal government doesn't control national corporations and multinational corporations don't control your food. Mm -hmm. They don't control your energy. They don't control your life being able to make so many of the things that you would normally do without a second thought illegal oh yeah man all right well we will definitely do this again man um <laughs> really enjoyed the conversation so uh you guys got the links uh in case anybody hasn't heard me say it a million times Axis sledge supplements for all your needs to get jacked and tan use code batovic 10 at checkout and until next time everybody take care Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.